Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, December 6th, I'm Pamela Silva. These are today's headlines. Days after a major shooting at a base in Hawaii, another shooting at a military facility, this time in Pensacola, Florida, several people reportedly killed, including the shooter. A shocking robbery gone wrong near Miami, two suspects hijacking a UPS truck, leading police on a wild chase across two counties. Now four people are dead. And will the White House participate in the proceedings? That's the major question today, as Democrats get to work on articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. This and much more today on You News, recorded live from our newsroom in Miami. Now to breaking news this morning, an active shooter who opened fire in the early hours at a naval air station in Pensacola has died. The shooter killed at least two people and left multiple others injured. It was unclear if the two victims killed were service members or civilians. At least eight people were transported to area hospitals. Officials have not shared any details about the shooter and little information was immediately available about the incidents at the military facility in Florida. And now to a wild police chase and shootout that left four people dead in South Florida. The highway looked like a war zone as police opened fire on a stolen UPS truck and two robbery suspects. Nearly a dozen officers firing their weapons in the middle of the busy evening commute. Here are the details. Shots have been fired. A frightening and deadly shootout all caught on tape and broadcast on live TV. In the middle of Russia, where dozens of officers from various local police agencies in South Florida fired their weapons at a stolen UPS truck and two robbery suspects. You can even hear the bullets impacting the vehicles nearby. They start shooting, um, and at that point, we just locked down everything. Hearing the ricochet bullets flying right by the vehicle, uh, at which point, you know, due to concerns of being staying alive, uh, kicks in and you do what you can to protect yourself and your family. This was the end of a massive chase that started more than 20 miles away in the city of Coral Gables. Police say two suspects held up a jewelry store, then took off in a van, opening fire as they got away. All of a sudden we hear like eight or ten backfires, which clearly were gunshots. This is what dangerous people do to get away. At one point, a bullet hit Coral Gables City Hall, which was on lockdown. The suspects then carjacked a UPS delivery truck and kidnapped its driver, taking off with police in pursuit. The suspects running red lights, hopping curbs, packagings flying off the truck into traffic. The truck coming to a stop on a busy highway in Miramar in neighboring Broward County as numerous police vehicles closed in. The chase ending in a barrage of gunfire. The armed suspects engaged law enforcement, opened fire. There was exchange fire between law enforcement and the suspects. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the suspects are now deceased, but two additional innocent civilians were also deceased. Among those innocent victims, a bystander inside another car at the scene of the shooting and the UPS driver, identified as 27-year-old and father of two, Frank Ordonez. And for more on this story, let's go to Axel Turcios. He's got a chance to speak to relatives of the UPS driver who was tragically killed in this incident. Axel, how's the family doing this morning? 
Pamela, the family is still mourning his death. They're feeling really bad. And just a couple of hours ago, we've seen family members and friends coming to this house where Frank Ordonez, like you said, used to live. And right now, uh, his stepfather, Joe Marino, has agreed to be with us in this interview. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. And in the name of the Univision family, I would like to express our condolences for your loss. Uh, my question is, how are you coping with all of this that's just happened so fast? And you're the voice of the whole family. Sure, sure. This is a nightmare. And this is a bad dream that uh, I'm hoping to wake, wake up from. Uh, but I, I don't seem to be waking up. It seems like it, it, the nightmare continues. You were telling me that you want your son's death to send a message. What is that? Justice. Justice is what I want. Right now, I haven't received any information other than the FBI. The, the five departments that were involved in this pursuit uh, haven't seen, haven't have received a call from anyone other than the FBI while we were at the hospital last night, uh, which Frank never made it to the hospital because the FBI uh, mentioned that he died on the scene. Uh, the FBI was very gracious to, uh, to come down to the house and meet with us and um, met with me. And, and uh, there was conversations that I can't reveal um, uh, because it's an ongoing investigation. They've taken over the investigation. The locals are out of it. Frank was very young. He was 27. Can you tell us a little bit more how, about how he was as a person? Frank was a very noble young man, uh, a workaholic. Uh, Frank never drank, never uh, smoked, and certainly never used drugs. Uh, he was a body person, homebody. Um, he was a father of a three- and a five-year-old. Uh, he was someone that always cared about the family. He worked for five and a half years in the preload at UPS, which is where they load. It's the morning shift where they load the, the vehicles overnight, and the drivers come in the morning, and they, they leave for their daily deliveries. And then he, for about a year and a half or so, he was a cover driver. He covers different routes for vacation time and sick time. And so he was driving the, he was doing the Coconut Grove route, which is a 24-footer in Coconut Grove. When we got the word from uh, his oldest brother, that he has seen it on the news. It was a small package car, a P500 that, or a P400 uh, that, that was in, in, in Coral Gables. So I told my wife that disregard because that's not Frank. He's in a different route. What then, happened when you actually found out that that well, was Frank? Well, that, that was his older brother that called back and identified Frank because if you see in the video, Frank is crawling uh, from the passenger side steps and he, he reaches the, the street. Once he, once he reaches the, the street, then, then uh, he identified as his brother, and that's when we got the. He called us back, and then he told us this is where he was. Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about his daughters, and you told me that he loved him so much. Just a, a week ago, he uh, put all of these Christmas decorations. How are you planning? Uh, are you even planning to tell them? I mean, they're little; they're a three-year-old and a five-year-old. What? How are you gonna? What? What? What's the family thinking about? That's this? a that's a challenge because they're, with a three and five-year-old, you're dealing with small children that have no comprehension. No, uh, all they know is that I don't know when they ask for dad. I don't know how we're going to react. I don't know what a response is going to be. Have they asked for him? No, they're with the mother. They're not here. They're with the, the mother right now, and um, I don't know what the, the mother's going to say. I'm sure she'll choose the words wisely, and she knows the, the girls better, being the mother. So hopefully we can overcome this. I don't think we're ever going to overcome this, but 
in a sense of the girls. Um, how do you tell the three or five year old when he's here with the girls and he goes to the car to get something from the car and he comes out and the girls are crying for him? So Frank was a very humble young man, a hard worker, kind, never hurt anyone, helped everybody, uh, helped his, his co-workers, um, helped uh, everyone. Joe, thank you so much. And again, in the name of the Univision family, our deepest condolences for your loss. And of course, uh, we're going to keep in touch with whatever develops in this tragic story. As of now, the FBI has taken over this investigation. Live in Hialeah, I'm Axel Tercios, back in the studio. Thank you, Asim. We shall be pending to the results of the FBI, FBI investigation. Thank you so much. Our condolences again to the family of Frank Ordonez. And now on Capitol Hill, the impeachment showdown once again escalating. The House now on track for a vote to impeach President Trump for Christmas. After that dramatic announcement from Speaker Nancy Pelosi ordering her deputies to draft articles of impeachment, Fernanda Sarasa has more details. Speaker Pelosi making it clear Democrats are moving full steam ahead to impeach the president. The president's actions made it necessary. Uh, you cannot violate the Constitution. In full view, the facts are clear. Democrats are now debating the scope of the charges against Trump and whether they should include obstruction of the Mueller probe. But Pelosi is keeping her cards close. We're operating collectively. It's not going to be um, somebody put something on the table. It, it, we have our own, uh, shall we say, um, communication with each other. Articles of impeachment could be introduced next week, setting up a House vote on impeachment likely before Christmas. At the White House, the president asked about the matter. Are you worried, sir, about the stain that impeachment might have on your legacy? No, not at all. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. It's a big, fat hoax. Republicans have insisted Democrats want to impeach Trump simply because they don't like him. They've always wanted to impeach the president. The speaker was asked Thursday if this is personal, and she fired back. You hate the president, Madam Speaker? Because I don't, I don't hate anybody. Representative I don't Cohen, have a great uh, reason I am. House, we don't hate anybody, not anybody in the world. So don't, don't yeah. accuse me. I did not accuse you. I asked a question. And, and Representative I, Collins yesterday suggested that the Democrats are doing this simply because they don't like the guy. I have nothing to do with it. Let me just say this. I, Pelosi walking back to the microphones to make sure her point was heard. This is about the Constitution of the United States and the facts that lead to the president's violation of his oath of office. I don't hate anyone, so don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Carolina Saraza, U News. Thank you, Carolina. And the White House faces a 5 p.m. deadline today to notify the House Judiciary Committee whether it intends to participate in the impeachment proceedings next week. Let's go directly to Janet Rodriguez. She's at the White House with all the details. Janet, what's the latest and what do we know so far? Well, so far, silence from the White House this morning, not saying what their actions will be, but we do not expect the White House to suddenly cooperate with the investigation. They have refused to do so so far, and we don't believe the president will be present in the procedures next week. But the White House could give us, uh, you know, a surprise before five o'clock, so we're just waiting. But the White House, as we know so far, has refused to cooperate because they say that the impeachment procedure is simply a hoax, as we just heard the president saying, and that they will not cooperate 
with something that they believe is unfair and they do believe that the president did nothing wrong and they have to until now refuse to let some key White House officials like Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and the U.S. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo testify. So we do not believe they will suddenly cooperate. The president this morning in a tweet calling the impeachment proceeding a horror show, saying that if the Democrats were, were not doing impeachment, then the situation at the border may be better and even the economy could be even better than he's doing so far, even though we have a very strong economy and saying that this is simply because of the horror show that the Democrats are holding in Congress. Things are not moving along and things are not doing better. So we wait for five o'clock. But as I said before, we do not believe that the White House will cooperate next week. Back to you. We'll be on summer for the 5 p.m. deadline. Thank you so much, Janet, live from the White House. And meanwhile, President Trump is asking the Supreme Court to block a House subpoena demanding his accounting firm hand over his personal records. The justices have already temporarily frozen that subpoena while they consider whether they will hear the appeal. Trump's filing comes after an appeals court ruled it is not unconstitutional for Congress to demand financial information from a president. Trump's personal attorney, Jay Sokolow, argues the case will determine whether Congress can exercise dominion and control over the office of the president. The justices are scheduled to meet behind closed doors next Friday on a similar petition involving a New York grand jury subpoena for Trump's tax returns. Another national news, a new federal jobs report is in. The Labor Department announcing that the United States added 266,000 jobs in November. The unemployment rate declined to 3.5 percent from 3.6 in October, matching a half-century low. As for wages, there rose a solid 3.1 percent in November, compared with a year earlier. The healthy job gain runs counter to the idea that businesses are struggling to find workers with unemployment so low. A new report says that American households spent more than $1 trillion on their health care last year. The number represents a new milestone and it marks a more than 4% increase over the year before. The National Health Expenditure Report shows that nation overall spent $3.6 trillion on health care which is almost 18% of the economy. About a million more Americans were uninsured last year with the total climbing to almost 31 million people in the States. And turning to immigration, according to experts, the Trump administration is strategically targeting undocumented immigrants. And they say the clear evidence isn't in their high-profile immigration rates, but instead via much smaller operations. Luis Mejid explains. With almost 700 arrests, worksite immigration raids like this one in Mississippi attract national attention. But smaller and less spectacular operations show how the government is making undocumented workers and their employers its main enforcement target. Last fiscal year, ICE opened about four times the number of workplace investigations compared to the last fiscal year of the Obama administration. Critics say the figures show the real priorities of the Trump immigration policy. But ICE says the focus on immigration is not stopping its efforts to fight international gangs, drugs and other crimes. In spite of the increase in worksite enforcement operations, the number of arrests of employers has been going down. Last year they arrested 72, this year only 40. Undocumented workers are getting the message there is no place where now they can feel safe. 
Government resources might be limited, but fear is spreading farther and faster than any ICE agent can. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. Thank you, Luis. And now turning to a story that some viewers might find very disturbing. Video obtained by the news organization ProPublica shows that a teenager died in Customs and Border Patrol custody after not receiving proper medical attention. The video contradicts CBP officials' account of his death. 16-year-old Carlos Hernandez Vasquez died at a CBP facility in Texas in May. The teen was diagnosed with the flu before he was put in a holding cell. And according to ProPublica, Vasquez collapsed and remained on the floor for four and a half hours. According to the analysis, the teen's roommate had to get the guard's attention, even though an official Border Patrol press release, the agency claimed Vasquez was found unresponsive during a welfare check. Let's turn to another ProPublica investigation into the immigration system. Newly uncovered documents show the Trump administration contracted the consulting firm McKenzie to find, quote, savings opportunities in the immigration detention system, including measures that some officials found to be too harsh. The documents were uncovered through a freedom of information lawsuit filed by ProPublica reporter Ian McDougall, and he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Describe for us what does McKenzie, in this case, his consulting firm, did in this case, and what did his contract the race concerns? It, it began uh, as a contract under the Obama administration, really, to sort of generally improve processes um, at uh, ICE, and specifically the part of it that does enforcement, uh, uh, both sort of detaining and deporting folks who are found unlawfully in the country. Uh, under the Trump administration, that project changed quite dramatically um, to uh, involve uh, principally implementing two of the uh, immigration directives, uh, including hiring 10,000 new uh, immigration officers and also uh, trying to help uh, ICE expand its detention capacity, expecting an influx of new detainees um, while uh, uh, spending less money on that. Ian, as you mentioned and just pointed out, McKenzie was initially hired under President Obama, but the Trump administration extended their contract. And what changed specifically and the most concerning part of those changes made by the Trump administration? It, it was really the, the moment on January 25th, 2017, when uh, uh, the president signed these two executive orders. The work uh, had already had to do with hiring and procurement, but um, it then became very focused on uh, very specifically implementing those two aspects of the uh, executive orders, uh, both uh, moving more resources to detention centers near the border, uh, expecting an influx of, of detainees, and then also hiring uh, this this large number of new immigration officers. What were McKenzie's recommendations and how did the officials within ICE respond to these suggestions? Early on, they uh, recommended um, things like cutting the per diem price uh, for food, for um, uh, medical care, uh, for uh, maintenance and other issues at certain of these detention centers, which are run by contractors, not by ICE directly. Um, the, were, there was a set of folks within ICE, uh, and I should say within the McKinsey team, that were, were troubled by uh, much of this. Um, and uh, ultimately, as they helped ICE renegotiate some of these contracts, they backed off some of those most troubling recommendations. But ICE says they do remain on the books, and so they could influence future um, contract negotiations. Now, you also found that McKenzie proposed accelerating the deportation process and moved that race internal concerns. Why is that? 
Well, I think anytime the there is a push to move uh, the deportation process along more quickly, even though this ostensibly was just about folks who have final uh, order, removal orders, uh, there are always concerns that um, that there will be sort of uh, uh, people will skip parts of the process. The due process won't be fully uh, accorded uh, to people, even though on paper um, it, it, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, in practice, um, there were concerns that, that it could affect due process rights. And once you were able to obtain all this information, Ian, what did ICE and McKenzie say in response to your report? McKenzie has all along denied that they did anything to help implement uh, the Trump administration's immigration policy, which I think these documents and the interviews uh, show is not the case. Uh, ICE has said that uh, McKinsey's work helped them uh, uh, increase uh, uh, removal times uh, and also saved them about $16 million on uh, the five renegotiated detention center contracts. Well, thank you so much, Ian McDougall, contributing reporter for ProPublica. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me. A former singer of a popular Tejano music group is making a comeback on stage after being away for over a decade, but his departure from the music scene wasn't voluntary. Instead, he was in prison for raping his teenage niece, and now some Houston area residents are furious that he's set to return in the same area where the crime took place. Pedro Rojas has this story. This dance hall of Houston, Texas, is under the watch of hundreds of Tejano music fans. On December 13th, Tejano music singer Joe Lopez is returning to the stage after he was found guilty of sexually assaulting his 13-year-old niece in 2004 and sentenced to 32 years in jail, of which he served almost 12 and is now on parole. The Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles is allowing the musician to visit and work in Harris County, where the victim of the crimes resides, even though Initially, he was banned from visiting Houston. Andy Cahan, who is a crime victim's advocate, says that it is disappointing. To pick Houston as your first one tells me that they're superseding the rights of a victim in favor of the rights of a convicted sex offender. As a part of his parole, Joe Lopez is obligated to be registered as a sex offender for life and cannot have contact with minors. Meanwhile, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles indicated to you news. In Mr. Lopez's case, the condition of not entering Harris County was recently modified solely for employment purposes. In making the decision, the parole panel reviewed his satisfactory compliance with parole since its release date of March of 2018. Additionally, the board recognizes the importance of employment as being a critical component to successful reentry for offenders. El Rodeo in Houston, Texas, is the venue that Joe Lopez has chosen to start his comeback tour title, Freedom. It is a journey that will take him to six cities in Texas before this year is over. We might have some of those haters out there, but I can tell you that Joe has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of number one fans who have waited for this time, for this day to get here. Andy Cahan also showed us documents of court depositions of two women yeah. that stated that they had sexual encounters with Lopez. One of them had a child when she was only 14 years of age in the 90s. Meanwhile, the agent of Lopez told us that he had recorded three new songs that will be releasing next week. In Houston, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News. Enough for stories making headlines around the world. And we start in Australia. Over 100 blazes are burning across the southeastern state of New South Wales. The country has been experiencing one of its worst wildfire seasons on record. 
As of Thursday, there were more than 117 bush and grass fires with more than 60 not yet contained. The Australian state, which includes the country's largest city, Sydney, is also experiencing the longest and most widespread period of air pollution due to the heavy smoke from the bushfires surrounding the capital. A final report by the Organization of American States is detailing deliberate and malicious steps to rig Bolivia's October election in favor of then-President Evo Morales. The report released Wednesday describes several violations, including the use of a hidden computer server designed to tilt the vote toward Morales. The former president fled to Mexico shortly after the OS, OAS's initial report in early November. The described allegations of vote rigging as a political hit, saying the OAS was in the service of the North American empire. And Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, says that the South American trade bloc Mercosur needs to hurry up and implement agreements the group has negotiated. The Mercosur common market and concluded a free trade accord with the European Union in June that took two decades to negotiate but still needs to be rectified by Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay, as well as all EU member states. And Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador had, quote, a good meeting with U.S. Attorney General William Barr Thursday, according to a post on his Twitter account. He also praised Barr for understanding that the Mexican Constitution calls for cooperation and non-intervention in the foreign policy. The meeting comes as Mexico continues to grapple with a surge of cartel violence and the ongoing challenge of processing Central American migrants waiting to enter the U.S. More of your news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. It's adoption day for a Michigan boy, but it wasn't just him and his new family celebrating. The child also had his entire class cheering him on. Miridi Moringi has more on this very special day. Today is an extraordinary day here at the Kent County Courthouse. It is adoption day in Kent County. No doubt, a day that five-year-old Michael will never forget. Dressed to the nines and so excited he could hardly sit still, as his adoption was just moments from being finalized. Really, it is the best day for a judge uh, to be able to confirm adoptions. And Michael wanted everyone to see it. So he invited his entire kindergarten class. Welcome to the courthouse. Who waved hearts and cheered him on during the ceremony. After fostering for about a year, his parents, Andrea and Dave, knew they had found the right fit for their family. He brings us a lot of joy. Just so full of energy and so full of love. And it's just been great for everybody. And I'm so pleased to make this official and sign this as the order of the court. And now it's official. Yay! 
Michael has his forever family and no shortage of love all around him. But it was a great right. tribute to uh, Michael that he had so many of his uh, classmates here and so many said he was their best friend too. <laughs> Never have I experienced that before and it was loads of fun and the kids were into it and supporting their best friend and of uh, the family of Michael as well. Michael jumping for joy, posing for pictures with his new parents and of course his classmates. And the icing on the cake, meeting with Sam Santa to cap off his day. Michael already has everything he wants this holiday season. You know, giving a kid a permanent home, a forever family, is just the best gift you can give anybody. Again, we've been really fortunate and just hopefully other families get to enjoy, you know, similar, similar moment, similar experience. Maridi Morungi for U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.